0: chapter 13 of steep trails this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by jim clevenger steep trails by john muir chapter 13 nevada forests when the traveler from california has crossed the sierra and gone a little way down the eastern flank the woods come to an end about as suddenly and completely as if going westward he had reached the ocean from the very noblest forest in the world he emerges into free sunshine and dead alkaline lake levels mountains are seen beyond rising in bewildering abundance range beyond range but however closely we have been accustomed to associate forests and mountains these always present a singularly barren aspect appearing gray and forbidding and shadeless like heaps of ashes dumped from the blazing sky but wheresoever we may venture to go in all this good world Nature is ever found richer and more beautiful than she seems, and nowhere may you meet with more varied and delightful surprises than in the byways and recesses of this sublime wilderness. Lovely asters and abronias on the dusty plains, rose gardens round the mountain wells, and rosiny woods where all seems so desolate adorning the hot foothills as well as the cool summits, Fed by cordial and benevolent storms of rain and hail and snow, all of these scant and rare as compared with the immeasurable exuberance of California, but still amply sufficient throughout the barest deserts for a clear manifestation of God's love. Though Nevada is situated in what is called a great basin, no less than sixty-five groups and chains of mountains rise within the bounds of the state to a height of about from eight thousand to thirteen thousand feet above the level of the sea and as far as i have observed every one of these is planted to some extent with coniferous trees though it is only upon the highest that we may find anything that may fairly be called a forest the lower ranges and the foothills and slopes of the higher are roughened with small, scrubby junipers and nut pines, while the dominating peaks, together with the ridges that swing in grand curves between them, are covered with a closer and more erect growth of pine, spruce, and fir, resembling the forests of the eastern states, both as to size and general botanical characteristics. Here is found what is called the heavy timber, but the tallest and most fully developed sections of the forest growing down in sheltered hollows on moist moraines would be regarded in california only as groves of saplings and so relatively they are for by careful calculation we find that more than a thousand of these trees would be required to furnish as much timber as may be obtained from a single specimen of our sierra giants the height of the timber line in eastern nevada near the middle of the great basin is about eleven thousand feet above sea level consequently the forests in a dwarfed storm-beaten condition pass over the summits of nearly every range in the state broken here and there only by mechanical conditions of the surface rocks only three mountains in the state have as yet come under my observation whose summits rise distinctly above the tree line these are wheelers peak twelve thousand three hundred feet high mount moriah about twelve thousand feet and granite mountain about the same height all of which are situated near the boundary line between nevada and utah territory in a rambling mountaineering journey of eighteen hundred miles across the state i have met nine species of coniferous trees four pines two spruces two junipers and one fir about one-third the number found in california by far the most abundant and interesting of these is the pinus fremontana or nut pine in the number of individual trees and extent of range this curious little conifer surpasses all the others combined nearly every mountain in the state is planted with it from near the base to a height of from eight thousand to nine thousand feet above the sea some are covered from base to summit by this one species with only a sparse growth of juniper on the lower slopes to break the continuity of these curious woods which though dark-looking at a little distance are yet almost shadeless and without any hint of the dark glens and hollows so characteristic of other pine woods tens of thousands of acres occur in one continuous belt indeed viewed comprehensively the entire state seems to be pretty evenly divided into mountain ranges covered with nut-pines and plains covered with sage now a swath of pines stretching from north to south now a swath of sage the one black the other gray one severely level the other sweeping on complacently over ridge and valley and lofty crowning dome the real character of a forest of this sort would never be guessed by the inexperienced observer Traveling across the sage levels in the dazzling sunlight, you gaze with shaded eyes at the mountains rising along their edges, perhaps twenty miles away, but no invitation that is at all likely to be understood is discernible. Every mountain, however high it swells into the sky, seems utterly barren. Approaching nearer, a low brushy growth is seen, strangely black in aspect, as though it had been burned this is a nut pine forest the bountiful orchard of the red man when you ascend into its midst you find the ground beneath the trees and in the openings also nearly naked and mostly rough on the surface a succession of crumbling ledges of lava limestone slate and quartzite coarsely strewn with soil weathered from them here and there occurs a bunch of sage or linocerus, or a purple aster or a tuft of dry bunch grass the harshest mountainsides hot and waterless seem best adapted to the nut pine's development no slope is too steep none too dry every situation seems to be gratefully chosen if only it be sufficiently rocky and firm to afford secure anchorage for the tough grasping roots it is a sturdy thick-set little tree usually about fifteen feet high when fully grown and about as broad as high holding its knotty branches well out in every direction in stiff zigzags but turning them gracefully upward at the ends in rounded bosses though making so dark a mass in the distance the foliage is a pale grayish-green in stiff all shaped fascicles when examined closely these round needles seem inclined to be two-leaved but they are mostly held firmly together as if to guard against evaporation the bark on the older sections is nearly black so that the boles and branches are clearly traced against the prevailing gray of the mountains on which they delight to dwell the value of this species to nevada is not easily overestimated it furnishes fuel charcoal and timber for the mines and together with the enduring juniper so generally associated with it supplies the ranches with abundance of firewood and rough fencing many a square mile has already been denuded in supplying these demands but, so great is the area covered by it no appreciable loss has as yet been sustained it is pretty generally known that this tree yields edible nuts but their importance and excellence as human food is infinitely greater than is supposed in fruitful seasons like this one the pine-nut crop of nevada is perhaps greater than the entire wheat crop of california concerning which so much is said and felt throughout the food markets of the world. The Indians alone appreciate this portion of nature's bounty and celebrate the harvest home with dancing and feasting. The cones, which are bright grass-green in color, and about two inches long by one and a half in diameter, are beaten off with poles just before the scales open, gathered in heaps of several bushels, and lightly scorched by burning a thin covering of brushwood over them. The rosin, with which the cones are bedraggled, is thus burned off, the nuts slightly roasted, and the scales made to open. Then they are allowed to dry in the sun, after which the nuts are easily thrashed out and are ready to be stored away. They are about half an inch long, by a quarter of an inch in diameter, pointed at the upper end, rounded at the base, light brown in general color, and handsomely dotted with purple, like birds' eggs. The shells are thin, and may be crushed between the thumb and finger. The kernels are white and waxy-looking, becoming brown by roasting, sweet and delicious to every palate and are eaten by birds squirrels dogs horses and a man when the crop is abundant the indians bring in large quantities for sale they are eaten around every fireside in the state and oftentimes fed to horses instead of barley looking over the whole continent none of nature's bounties seems to me so great as this in the way of food none so little appreciated Fortunately for the Indians and wild animals that gather around nature's board, this crop is not easily harvested in a monopolizing way. If it could be gathered like wheat, the whole would be carried away and dissipated in towns, leaving the brave inhabitants of these wilds to starve. Long before the harvest time, which is in September and October, the Indians examined the trees with keen discernment and inasmuch as the cones require two years to mature from the first appearance of the little red rosettes of the fertile flower the scarcity or abundance of the crop may be predicted more than a year in advance squirrels and worms and clark crows make haste to begin the harvest when the crop is ripe the indians make ready their long beating poles Baskets, bags, rags, mats are gotten together. The squaws, out among the settlers at service, washing and drudging, assemble at the family huts. The men leave their ranch work, all old and young, are mounted on ponies and set off in great glee to the nutlands, forming cavalcades curiously picturesque. Flaming scarfs and calico skirts Stream loosely over the knotty ponies, usually two squaws astride of each, with the small baby midgets bandaged in baskets slung on their backs or balanced upon the saddlebow, while the nut baskets and water jars project from either side and the long beating poles like old-fashioned lances angle out in every direction, arrived at some central point already fixed upon where water and grass is found the squaws with baskets the men with poles ascend the ridges to the laden trees followed by the children beating begins with loud noise and chatter the burrs fly right and left lodging against stones and sagebrush the squaws and children gather them with fine natural gladness smoke columns speedily mark the joyful scene of their labors as the roasting fires are kindled and at night assembled in circles garrulous as jays the first grand nut feast begins sufficient quantities are thus obtained in a few weeks to last all winter the indians also gather several species of berries and dry them to vary their stores and a few deer and grouse are killed on the mountains, besides immense numbers of rabbits and hares, but the pine nuts are the main dependents, their staff of life, their bread. Insects also, scarce noticed by man, come in for their share of this fine bounty. Eggs are deposited, and the baby grubs, happy fellows, Find themselves in a sweet world of plenty, feeding their way through the heart of the cone, from one nut chamber to another, secure from rain and wind and heat, until their wings are grown and they are ready to launch out into the free ocean of air and light. End of chapter 13. Recording by Jim Clevenger, Little Rock, Arkansas. Jim at JOCCLDV dot